We are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Luke in our sermon passage this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. The Gospel of Luke provides us a, a wonderful opportunity to look to Jesus, to know the most important, influential, famous person who has ever walked the face of the earth. What you believe about Jesus is of utmost importance. He is simply a person that you cannot ignore. And the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this gospel account about the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we see right at the beginning of Luke's gospel that he stated that he set out to write an orderly account about the, the life and the, and the ministry of Jesus. His uh, the person who, whom he wrote was a man named uh, Theophilus. But of course, he wasn't only writing to him, but he was most likely had a broader audience in mind. But he said that I am writing this to you, this orderly account about Jesus, so that you can have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. And that is good news for us. We want to have certainty regarding the things that we are taught about Jesus. Having certainty about something is obviously important. And obviously, the more important the matter, the more important it is that we have certainty. If I can't remember whether or not I fed the dogs in the morning, eh, it's not that important whether I'm certain that I fed them or not. They're going to live, okay? But when it comes to something of eternal significance, uh, of utmost importance, it is so important that we have certainty regarding what we have been taught. And the passage that we're going to study this morning is another one that is just of, of utmost importance for us. And we want to know and to learn from this passage, and we want to have certainty that it is true. And God, in his grace, inspired Luke to write this orderly account so that we can know these things, so that we can believe these things, so that we can have certainty about these things, and thus we'll have the confidence to live our lives according to this truth. Luke said that I, he, he set out to write an orderly account of Jesus's life, and what we see is that the gospel writers generally follow Jesus's life chronologically. They provide us a sequential recounting of Jesus's life. But we also see that they were not committed to a strict chronology of Jesus' life, meaning that there were times when they moved some things around um, topically or thematically. So they don't give us every single detail in perfect chronology because they want to help us understand some things, and so they will move some things around within the life and the ministry of Jesus just to help us better understand. This does not in any way undermine the historicity of their accounts because they were providing history. In order to provide history, it did not contradict that to rearrange some things for their purposes of helping those to whom they wrote understand, better understand the life and the ministry, the teaching of Jesus. And I think we see an example of that in our passage this morning. In our passage this morning, we read about Jesus's ministry in Capernaum. But what's interesting is that if you remember last week's passage, Jesus referenced his ministry in Capernaum. So last week's passage, Jesus was at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he was met with some skepticism, resistance, and then some downright hostility. And Jesus addressed this skepticism amongst uh, the people of Nazareth. And one of the things he said was, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. 
what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, the people of Nazareth met Jesus with some resistance, some skepticism. Their attitude, their mindset was, we want you to prove yourself to us. You're making these claims about yourself, but we want you to prove it to us. What we've heard that you've done in Capernaum, these miraculous deeds that you've supposedly done, do it here. Let us see it. And now in our passage this morning, we read about what he did in Capernaum. And so it appears that Luke may have rearranged what happened here slightly to help us better understand what happened in Capernaum. Specifically, I think he wants us to understand our passage this morning through the lens of what Jesus said about the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, while he taught in the synagogue of Nazareth. So if you recall, while he was in the synagogue in Nazareth, he was handed a scroll He enrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus went on to say, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus, who is the Messiah, anointed by the Holy Spirit, transformed lives through his spirit-empowered preaching. And with that ringing in our ears, we turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. I'm going to read and I encourage you to follow along. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. 
And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. In our passage, we see the authority of the king, the hope of the future, and the advancing kingdom. So first we see the authority of the king. Once again, we see Jesus teaching in a Jewish synagogue, and the response of the audience is astonishment. It was not that they simply found his teaching interesting or insightful or helpful. What they experienced with the teaching of Jesus was completely different than what they had experienced with every other teacher who had come through and taught in their synagogue. It was a different experience altogether, and they were astonished by his teaching. What stood out to them? They noted that his word possessed authority. He was not merely teaching tradition that had been handed down to him. He was not relying on or quoting from the teachings of other rabbis. He was teaching the word of God as the one who inherently possessed the authority to teach the word of God. He could say, I'm telling, what I'm telling you is true, and you can be certain that it is true because I am the one that is saying it to you. It was not only what he taught, but the way he taught that astonished the audience. It was clear to them that he taught with authority in a way that they had not seen, in a way that was unique. And brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful reminder for us regarding the authority of Jesus' teaching and what it means for us. Jesus taught with authority because he inherently possesses authority to teach the truth. And as his followers, we are to regard his teaching as authoritative for our lives. Of course, this is not only true of Jesus' words, but it is true of all scripture. Jesus taught the Old Testament scriptures as the authoritative word of God. Moreover, Jesus commissioned his apostles to teach his word and sent the Holy Spirit to guide them in all truth, teach them all things, and cause them to remember his teaching. In other words, he gave them the authority and the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament scriptures. And we see that the books of the New Testament are written by the apostles or close associates of the apostles, such as Luke. The point is this. The words of Jesus are authoritative for us, as are all of Scripture. As followers of Jesus, we do not go to Scripture merely for good ideas, inspiration, or nuggets of wisdom. We go to Scripture because it is God's authoritative word that we joyfully submit to and obey. Understanding how we relate to God's word is of utmost importance for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus means we come under his authoritative word. 
we don't view his word as optional. We don't view his commands as optional to obey. We don't go to his word to pick and choose what we like, what we approve of, what fits with our values and preferences. Can you imagine a soldier picking and choosing when to obey orders? Can you imagine a musician in an orchestra picking and choosing when to follow the lead of the conductor? Can you imagine an athlete on a team picking and choosing when to follow the instructions of the coach? If and when that happens, it doesn't go well. We, we all understand this. We all understand that it doesn't work this way. How much more so do we need to obey and follow the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He taught with authority, and his words are authoritative for us. We are to come under his word, align our hearts and minds with his word, seek to understand and obey his word. We want to order our lives according to his word. And here's the thing. Obeying him and submitting to him is not burdensome. His word is life-giving. His commands are good. Following his ways is how we flourish. He is good. And his word is good. And it is good for us. In our passage, we see the authority of the king in his teaching. But we also see his authority and, and his power in his deeds. In the synagogue, Jesus was confronted by a demon who was tormenting a man in the audience. And the demon was the one who initiated the confrontation because he was afraid. He too recognized that the one before him was different than other teachers in the synagogue. He recognized that Jesus possessed unique authority and therefore he was in trouble. And there was nowhere for him to hide. He said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He probably had a better understanding of Jesus than the rest of the attendees at the synagogue that day. But how did Jesus respond? He was not afraid, and he did not hesitate. He did not use a spell. There was no incantation. And there was no long, drawn-out process. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And that was all it took. All he had to do was say the word, and this demon, demon who tormented the man was utterly powerless. He put up no fight. He had no defense. He could not even hurt the man on his way out. He tried to throw him down, but we read that no harm came to him. And Jesus demonstrated his authority 
over the forces of evil. Brothers and sisters, this is a great comfort to us. We live in a world that is full of evil. Man, it is hard to read the news and see the countless examples of evil in our world. We also experience the reality of evil personally in our, in our own lives in, in a variety of ways. And there are times when it feels as though the evil is overwhelming. At times it feels as though evil is prevailing. And it's easy for us to be discouraged by that, to even be afraid of that. The Bible teaches the historical reality of Satan and demons, both in the past and the present. And moreover, as followers of Jesus, we ought to expect a real spiritual battle with Satan and his demons. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter exhorts Christians to be watchful because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We don't want to be ignorant regarding the reality of evil and the forces of evil in the world. We don't want to be unaware. We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to be ill-equipped to engage in the spiritual battle. At the same time, whatever evil we encounter is no match for our king. We do not need to fear the evil one because our king has authority over all evil. Because of this, there are many examples in Scripture where we are commanded, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Psalm 23 is one of the most well-known chapters in all of Scripture. In that psalm, Jesus refers to the Lord as my shepherd. What do we read in verse 4 of Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord, our shepherd, our shepherd king, is with us. And he is more powerful. He is greater than all the forces of evil. And therefore, we need not fear. Not because nothing bad will happen to us in this life. We'll experience hardships. We'll experience trials. We'll experience suffering, and pain, and, and disappointment. But we know that ultimately, Jesus prevails. Ultimately, those who belong to him will join with him in that victory over evil and all the consequences of evil. Well, after the event in the synagogue, Jesus went to the home of Simon Peter whose mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. Some of the family appealed to Jesus on her behalf, 
and he was willing to help. And once again, with a quick word, he rebuked the fever, and she was healed immediately. The healing was so thorough and complete that she got out of bed right away and began to serve. Sometimes when we're recovering from a sickness or an illness, we need a little bit of time to regain our strength. There's usually a little bit of period of time where we still feel tired, we still feel a little bit weak. This was not the case with Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She was healed and restored like that. Her strength returned to her immediately. She was able to begin serving right away. There's no process. He healed her and restored her strength immediately. Not only did Jesus demonstrate his authority over evil, but he also demonstrated his authority over illness. Jesus is the Messiah, the spirit-anointed king, whom God promised would come to proclaim the good news and set captives free. And as a spirit-anointed king, Jesus demonstrated his authority in word and deed. Next, we see the hope of the future. The kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus. He is indeed the king the Lord promised would come. And as word about him spread, more people were brought to him. At sundown, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And there were more who were tormented by demons. And Jesus' response to all the people coming to him reveals not only his power and authority, but also his compassion. We read that Jesus laid hands on every one of them and healed them. There was no limit to his power. There was no limit to his compassion. He laid hands on every one of them, healing them, setting them free. And he rebuked the demons, cast them out. There wasn't a disease that he could not heal. There was not a demon who was too strong for him. Many people in need came to him, and he did not turn any of them away. What a combination of power and authority and compassion and kindness. But what has this to do with the future? While Jesus performed these wonderful miracles, demonstrating his power and compassion, it is obvious that the kingdom of God has not yet been fully realized. It has not yet been fully consummated. And again, this is obvious to us just by looking around at the world, just by observation. We can see evil and sin. We can see all these different things taking place in the world and go like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Even people who are not Christians can look at the world and go, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And it's not the way it's supposed to be because the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, setting captives free, healing the sick, seeking and saving the lost. But we still live in a world that is marred by sin and evil. So we are still waiting for something. We are waiting for the time when King Jesus will bring his plan to completion and we will enjoy the fullness of his kingdom. Well, what do we have to look forward to as we wait? Through his life and ministry, Jesus revealed what the kingdom of God will be like when it is fully 
realized. You see, his miraculous deeds were not only kind and compassionate to the ones for whom he performed them, but they were also revealing. What we see in our passage this morning was not just good news for those who were healed or who were set free, but also revealed things to us about the nature of God's kingdom. It gives us a glimpse, a picture of what we are looking forward to, what we are waiting for, what we are hoping for. And what we can draw from our passage today is that in his kingdom, there will be no evil and there will be no illness. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the relief and joy that will come when we no longer have to contend with evil and all the consequences of evil around us? Can you imagine what it will be like when we are free from every illness and disease? You see, the Lord has promised that one day he will make all things new. And those of us who are in Christ will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth with glorious, resurrected bodies. This is the future that awaits all who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus has the authority and power to make it so. Our hope is not merely in this life, in this world, in its present form. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. See, as Christians, we know that our lives here on this earth will be hard. There will be pain. There will be sadness. There will be disappointment. But we have hope beyond this life, beyond this world in its present form. Our hope is in our King, Jesus Christ, and his glorious kingdom. We know that in Christ Jesus, when we die, we will be with him. We look forward to an eternity with him and his perfect, glorious kingdom. That is the hope that we desire for you to know as well. You see, we are all in need of a Savior. And God in his mercy and his kindness has provided us with the Savior we need. And his name is Jesus. The good news is that all who repent and believe in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins against God and will receive the gift of eternal life and will be given this hope of a future with Christ in his glorious kingdom. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to repent of your sin, believe in Christ, and be saved. Rejoice in the hope of Christ and his kingdom. For Christians, we are reminded that our hope is not in this world in its present form. We know that in the grand scheme of things, our lives on this earth are short. They are but a mist that is here and then vanishes. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Our lives are short, but we look forward to an eternity with Christ in his kingdom. So brothers and sisters, we are to look back at what Jesus did with awe and wonder and we are to look forward to what he will do with hope and expectation. Following Jesus involves putting our hope in our future with him. And we see this time and time again in the writings of the New Testament. 
In Romans 8.18, Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul did not deny that there is suffering. He suffered greatly in this life. But he wanted to help our thinking, our, our perspective. He wanted to shape our thinking, our perspective, our attitudes through the lens of the gospel and say, yes, you will suffer, but the suffering that we experience here and now, if you're going to compare it to what awaits us, there's really no comparison. The glory that awaits us is so much greater than any suffering we experience here and now. And that helped sustain him through his suffering. The Lord used that to help him persevere in faithfulness to the Lord through tremendous suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, he wrote, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, some of us are feeling that, right? Our outer selves are wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul described his sufferings as light momentary afflictions. They will go away. The glory that we will know in Christ Jesus, we will experience for all eternity. We hope for the things that we cannot see. The things that we see, they're transient, they're passing away. The things that we presently do not see are eternal. And we can be certain of these things because of Christ and what he has done. He has demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is the, the king of kings, that he has the power and authority to bring this about and the love and the compassion to do so for his people. Our hope for the future is rooted and grounded in Jesus who displayed his authority and compassion, revealing the nature of the kingdom of God. We are able to look back at what he has done and be confident about what he will do. Our king has authority over evil and sickness and that is good news for us. Finally, we see the advance of the kingdom. In verse 43, Jesus said that he came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is the first time the phrase kingdom of God is used in Luke's gospel, which we will see is a significant theme. The phrase kingdom of God appears 32 times with other references to the kingdom as well. Tom Schreiner writes, the kingdom has to do with God's rule over his people in particular places and eventually to Christ's rule over the entire universe. We see here as well that the miracles and exorcisms of Jesus signify the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom has come in Jesus' person, and he is invading and conquering the space of the enemy, restoring human beings under his gracious lordship. As Jesus invaded the space of the enemy, the enemy opposed Jesus. There were forces at work opposing the king and the advancement of the kingdom. Earlier in chapter 4, we saw how Jesus went head to head with the devil in the wilderness. The devil tempted Jesus, seeking to pull him away from faithfulness and obedience to God. 
And Jesus resisted the temptations and the power of the Spirit, quoting God's word. Jesus remained perfectly obedient and faithful to the Lord. He resisted the temptations of the devil. In our text this morning, he was doing battle with the devil's minions, but they were no match for Jesus. It was not a tug of war. It was not a close contest. It was a decisive victory. The kingdom was advancing, and the forces of evil were no match. The demon in verse 33 said, have you come to destroy us? The answer to that question was yes. He did, in fact, come to destroy them. And they probably could not imagine, they probably could not comprehend how he would ultimately and finally deal the decisive blow through his sacrificial death upon the cross. Yes, he came to destroy them. The kingdom was advancing, but how would it continue to advance during his ministry? In the final part of the passage, the people of Capernaum found Jesus when he had gone by himself to a desolate place, presumably to pray. After everything they had witnessed and experienced, they wanted Jesus to stick around for a while. But Jesus refused and gave them the reason. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus understood why he was sent by the Father. He understood his purpose. He was resolved and committed to the mission, preaching the kingdom of God. He could not remain in that place where he was accepted, where he was loved, where he was appreciated. No, he had to continue to go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God, changing and transforming lives. The kingdom needed to advance, and it would advance, it would advance through his spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. And once again, we see the centrality and power of the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus. The lost are found, the blind regain their sight, the captives are set free, and the kingdom advances. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom continues to advance through the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. And that's not only in settings such as this one here. It's through the proclamation of the gospel in conversations that Christians have with non-Christians, in gatherings, yes, such as this one. We want the gospel to be proclaimed far and wide, knowing that the kingdom of God advances through the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. Paul described this at the beginning of Colossians. Listen to what he said in Colossians 1, 3 through 8. He said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf 
and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul rejoiced in the spread of the gospel. As the gospel spread, it was bearing fruit, meaning lives were continually changed and transformed. Sinners were saved and set free and welcomed into God's kingdom. And what he's describing here is what we desire and pray for as well. We desire for the, the, the gospel to continue to spread and increase and bear fruit. We want the Lord to use us to advance his kingdom. We want the Lord to use us to this end. He uses his servants to proclaim his word. Did you notice how when the, the demons proclaimed Jesus, even when they rightly confessed who Jesus was, he shut them down? No, you be silent. It did not matter that they rightly described Jesus as the Holy One of God or the Christ. They were not the right ones to confess him as Christ. That was not their job. They did not have the authority. They did not have the privilege. He would not be proclaimed by these demons. He shut them up and shut them down. But we have the joy and the privilege of proclaiming that he is the Christ. What he denied to his enemies, he graciously grants to us. We have the joy and the privilege of proclaiming that, yes, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Holy One of God. There is good news in Jesus. We have the joy of proclaiming this to sinners, that they too might be welcomed in to his glorious kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, anointed by the Spirit, proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God with power and authority. Brothers and sisters, there are two ideas I hope we can reflect on and apply to our hearts and lives. I would describe the two ideas as kingdom comfort and kingdom mindset. First, kingdom comfort. This passage offers us tremendous comfort the right kind of comfort. As Aaron prayed earlier, oftentimes we're prone to seek comfort in the wrong places. We want to seek comfort in the right place. And that's in Christ and the reality of his kingdom. In, if you are in Jesus Christ, then you belong to Jesus and his kingdom. This is a comfort to us because Jesus has power and authority. And the manner in which he uses his power and authority is for our good. He's compassionate towards us who are sinful and weak. He is loving and kind and merciful. And we belong to him. And no one can take us from his hand. No one can remove us from his kingdom. James Bryan Smith reminds us, you are one in whom Christ delights and dwells. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. Sure feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Sure feels like at times we're in trouble. Maybe the kingdom is in trouble. When we feel this way, we look to Christ, our King, and are reminded 
his power, his authority, his compassion, his kindness. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. I hope that you will find great comfort in Jesus and his kingdom. The second thing is kingdom mindset. We need to have a kingdom mindset. Another way of saying this is we need to align our desires, attitudes, and thoughts with the values and priorities of Christ's kingdom. The crowd in Capernaum didn't want Jesus to leave. Understandably so. He's handy in a tight spot, right? Like, hey, we got this guy who can heal us when we're sick and he can cast out demons. It's nice to have him around. You should stay a while. We want you here. But what did Jesus say? I have to go. The kingdom needed to advance. What the people in Capernaum needed to realize, what we need to realize, is that we need to rejoice in and celebrate the advance of Christ's kingdom. Right? What they needed to understand was we should celebrate him leaving, him going to other places to preach the gospel so other people can hear this good news. Right? Whereas it would be a disappointment for them, ultimately it's good for the kingdom. Having a kingdom mindset means there's times when we, we sacrifice. There's times when we have to lay down our own personal desires and, and agendas and preferences for the sake of the kingdom because we desire the kingdom to advance. And oftentimes it advances in ways that are costly for those who follow Jesus. Jesus said so. We want to pray that God will give us that willingness to pay the price, to endure the cost, to embrace the kingdom values, recognizing that our hope is not here and now, but it's in the future. We want to have that kingdom mindset so that we're willing to lay down our lives for the sake of others as Christ laid down his life for us. Like the people in the passage who brought others to Jesus, we too want to bring others to Jesus. We want the Lord to use us to that end. We want to take steps of faith. We want to take risks for the gospel. I'm so grateful for those who are participating in our evangelism class. If you want to do so, it's not too late. You can join in. We're doing it today, starting at about 11.50. Snacks are provided. The hope and the purpose of that class is to equip us to better proclaim this gospel to people in our lives so that the gospel will advance so that more sinners will be welcomed into the kingdom. We want the Lord to use us to this end. So let's pray. Let's pray that we find comfort in Jesus our King as we seek to be used by the Lord to advance his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is authoritative for us. We pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are eager to understand your word, to submit to your word, to obey your word, with the confidence that your word is good and good for us. We thank you and praise you for our King Jesus, who has power and authority over all evil and illness. Thank you and praise you for our King Jesus who is kind and compassionate to sinners such as us. 
And we thank you for the hope that we have for our future. We pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on that which is unseen and eternal. We pray that you would help us to work for the advance of the kingdom here and now. We pray that you would use us to that end. We thank you that you give us that privilege to proclaim Christ as King, Savior of the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.